Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chalada. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital is Mark Henderson. Uh, Mark is the Chief Executive of Magic Man Limited, a market-leading provider of on- and off-site repair and restoration solutions for multiple industries. Uh, Mark, very warm welcome to yourself today, and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Good afternoon, Scott, and thank you for the invitation. It's a real pleasure, Mark, and certainly is a lovely day for it. Um, I think we should begin by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that we are recording this podcast in early June of 2021. And although we are starting to move out of COVID-19 social restrictions, we are still somewhat in the grip of the global pandemic and have been for the best part of the last 14 months, haven't we? So with all of that in mind, to what extent would you say all of this has affected you and affected your business? Well, I think in common with many businesses, it's been uh, a very traumatic period uh, and, and very unexpected. It, it, the, uh, the onset of the pandemic um, was very, very fast for us, uh, particularly in one of our industry sectors, the marine sector, uh, where the cruise ships, which were in the news uh, quite early on about um, transmission of, of COVID-19, um, as a cruise um, uh, contractor, we lost uh, circa three million pounds worth of work in about three to four weeks, um, as, as uh, contract after contract was first stalled and then cancelled. So um, a huge and immediate impact for us. Um, similarly, in, in the construction side of things, um, and, and of course in insurance, who we, we um, carry out for about fourteen insurers, um, people didn't want you in their home. So there was a lot of panic around. And so it took uh, it, it took immediate action was required because of the size of of any business. You know, you're only as good as your income on a day to day business. Yes, absolutely. And I suppose that even now that we are seeing some green shoots starting to emerge, that particularly with the cruise side of things, the leisure and tourism industry, it's still going to take some time for that to return, isn't it? Because lingering restrictions are still posing a huge barrier in that sector. Uh, But also, even when it is sort of safe to resume full operation, it may take some time for consumer confidence to return too. Uh, absolutely. And, and we, we are starting to see the first uh, green shoots of recovery in the cruise industry, but there are lingering uh, uh, problems there um, with regard to visas and, and, of course, travel uh, on a worldwide basis uh, to get to various ships. But it's certainly in the recovery mode. Um, lots of our uh, clients have had um, uh, great reductions in numbers of redundancies uh, in common with all, all companies, including our own. Um, and so we're being asked to collaborate more, uh, more effectively, which we're happy to do. It's, it's a pulling together time. It's when when the chips are down. Generally, in in this, the UK anyway, you know, people get get together and, and do what has to be done. Um, so uh, 
it, it is recovering. Construction remained relatively stable throughout the period, although mm. it did dip in the first three to four months. Um, but uh, it, it is on the way out, but not without its its troubles, and particularly with with the travel side of things. I suppose with construction, it's an incredibly interesting time, isn't it? Because that's sort of taken the sort of emphasis of the government's agenda and strategy out of this, the whole build back better slogan. So for construction as sort of a centrepiece to that, it's going to be a very, very interesting time for that specific sector. There is a lot of activity in construction and I, and I think the, the, uh, the construction industry and the uh, main contractors and that for reacting as they did and, and bringing in uh, safe uh, working practices and engaging with their subcontract uh, network to make sure that you know everyone was in, involved in the construction process was was safe and could operate safely. Um, so there was a, a, a great uh, deal of activity and I've never had so many Zoom calls with, uh, with main contractors uh, where we've actually engaged far closer than we did uh, pre-pandemic. How has it been sort of engaging with people from a virtual perspective? Because I can imagine it's had to sort of take some changes from yourself in terms of your maybe leadership strategies, engaging with people that way, as opposed to maybe in person as before. I think, um, again, in common with many businesses and individuals, this, this whole you know, life has changed for everyone. Working life has changed for everyone. Many more people are working from home, taking that advantage. Everyone's looking at their work-life balance. Um, the IT, the introduction of Teams and Zoom meetings has made more regular contact um, available uh, and face-to-face -face contact. So that's changed the way that, you know, sales and marketing and, and interaction with your clients has worked, particularly so for, for us who who work with a lot of American clients, European clients, you know, we don't require the travel anymore. Um, and the, the sort of less personal telephone calls, you know, it's much nicer to, to, see, uh, to see somebody, to see who you're speaking to and interact with them uh, virtually. Um, so that's really worked. Um, but we have, I think the other result of the pandemic is that it's enabled me to, and I think in common with other business leaders that I know, we've had to evaluate our whole structure and the way that we work and, and interact with clients and employees um, and and really look for where savings could be made, where improvements could be made and bringing in new new and talented people to fill those uh, areas that perhaps uh, weren't so um, prevalent beforehand. So although there have been failures in, in uh, lots of failures in, in uh, businesses, and there have been redundancies. There have also been opportunities for a great deal of people, and I've taken advantage of that time to actually recruit some very, uh, very competent staff to make sure that as we emerge from this pandemic, we have the strength and depth to capitalise on on the new the new way forward. It's been a real learning curve, hasn't it, for business leaders this time? And they do say that every single day is a school day. And this period of self-reflection, albeit it's come at a difficult and tragic time, is ultimately going to prove really fruitful as we move into the future. I think, as you say, every day is a school day. And if you can go home and, and say that you've achieved something today and you've learned something new are the two goals of everybody, um, you know, achieving and moving forward and not just standing still. And that's what we do at Magic Man is to constantly look 
ahead and some of the, uh, the programs that we're looking at, some of the expansion um, uh, franchising opportunities. Um, we're very, obviously our key um, uh, saleable is the fact that we're very environmentally friendly and that's gone down particularly well, as say, with crews, mm. but also with construction and insurance and we're looking at other ways, other sustainable products and services that we can use that tie in um, and, and help us with that to to um, increase our sustainable uh, stamp on, on business. I mean, last year, uh, you may or may not be aware, we won the um, Sustainable Product of the Year for the cruise industry, which was against, you know, massive competition, which we're extremely proud about. Um, so I think there's great opportunity in, in moving forward in the second half of this year. And I think it's um, favourable among not just the government, but also the general public that the recovery from COVID is going to be a green one. And so sustainability is something that's very much on the agenda at the moment. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it certainly is exciting times. Um, Just dwelling again for just a little bit longer on the last 14 months, however, um, we've seen so many business leaders going into sort of, let's say, survival mode when guiding their companies through this period of time. And I do understand as well, Mark, that you did before venturing into the corporate world, enjoy a career for 15 or so years in the uh, the Royal Navy, didn't you? So with that in mind, do you think that that experience before coming into the business world has essentially helped you over the course of this um, last year or so, even though it's not quite the same sort of thing? Uh, absolutely, Scott. Um, I, I think that uh, I... I'm thankful every day that I spent my time in the Royal Navy, and I think I employ a, a goodly amount of servicemen and ex-servicemen. Sorry, um, I think it the service life uh, prepares you to be flexible. Um, uh, you know, take things on the chin. You know, look at look at problems realistically, adapt and overcome. Um, and that used to be a sort of watchword. So, you know, there are going to be. Uh, if you give up, the only the only thing you're going to gain if you give up is failure. So failure is not an option. Giving up is not an option. You have to find a way to manoeuvre through. Sometimes that is not understood by by staff employees. Um, but you know we're we're looking for the greater good of the company, survival of the company, survival of the uh, of the the greater number of employees. And um, I think the resilience that service life gives you. Um, it's a real advantage in business. Gives you that platform, doesn't it, to sort of motivate others driven by that need to survive and also lead by example, I suppose. Indeed. I mean, I think that um, people talk about entrepreneurship and, and, um, and, you know, people that are born entrepreneurs. Um, I think the, the key for me has been not to be afraid of failure. Um, if you're afraid of failure, you never take that step, um, which means you, you, you could fall. Um, and if you're always shying away from possible um, problems or, or, or failure, then, then you, you'll, in my view, take a much longer uh, journey to succession you know, if you do succeed. So I think with the services and, and living in cramped conditions on, on a ship and that where you, you're basically, you know, your uniform, your clothes, and everything you have is one on, one in the wash, and one clean. And if you can live your life simply and, and easily like that, um, then you you're not really afraid of, of, of going back to that. It's people who, who 
want to achieve for the sake of achieving and and, and don't really have a goal um, apart from their own achievement, which is which is the more, more common than, than uh, people who wanted a greater good for, for everyone in the business. I think it's an incredible point that you make there of not being afraid to fail because it is through failure that we learn, isn't it? And learning is something that you do every single day, even in a leadership position. And that is something, as we've already covered on here, that the pandemic has reminded us of, for sure. Absolutely. Failure is key to success. Um, without failure, you, you can't succeed in my book. Um, and I failed many times over the last sort of 28 years. Um, you know, I've been, you know, in the depths of despair. I've been, you know, in difficult situations, but I've, I've had some amazing people around me, um, friends, business colleagues that have enabled me to, to work with them and through any problem that we have faced. And, you know, in, the, in this last sort of year, 14 months, um, has probably been some of the, the most traumatic times. Um, but uh, no, with say failure breeds success. And people have certainly brought the best out of themselves in the last 40 months as well. I think that is fair to say. And we've seen people adapting and innovating on an unprecedented level. And hopefully that is something that we also see continue over the year, the course of the next year or so and beyond as we move out of lockdown. And I do want to talk about the future in a little bit more detail just before we do wrap things up on the show today, Mark. Um, because we are seeing the green shoots that we've discussed. We're seeing social restrictions slowly being lifted. Um, but as we hopefully move into that post-COVID world, uh, what is next for you and for Magic Man? And where ideally would you like the business to be this time in 2022? Well, um, as crazy as it sounds, Scott, my, my ambition is always to see Magic Man as a global brand. Um, and we have achieved that in the, in the cruise industry. Um, we sent teams. I had a team leave today for America. Uh, we operate on a global basis. But when I've been around in construction meetings in uh, uh, and fairs in America and other countries, you know, they still don't have the breadth and, and depth of repair expertise that we've developed here at Magic Man. And I've run a small franchise operation here to prove concept. Um, so. I have franchise opportunities. Someone who wants to franchise Canada has franchise opportunities in Scandinavia. I'd like to extend that elsewhere around the world. Um, I'd like to move into some other industries, transportation. There aren't many industries that don't require on-site repair. I mean, everything we do saves typically 70% of, um, of the, the cost of replacement. Um, and the more that we can repair and replace rather than you know, buy new, everything has to be produced, grown, transported, assembled, then distributed again. You know, the cost and environmental savings in using a service like ours are, are immense. So there is lots and lots of opportunity um, and it's just how you capitalise on it. I think that's incredible food for thought for everybody tuning into the podcast today and I think it's fantastic that you do have such great ambitions and that there is exciting times ahead indeed for Magic Man and I wish you all the luck in the world over the year the next year in making that vision a reality mark and I think as the fog starts to lift and we start to see what sort of shape the economic recovery is taking as well it would be amazing to catch up and have you back on the show just to see how things are getting on with that because it's been wonderful having you with us really has very eye-opening. Well, thank you very much, Scott, and I'd, I'd certainly be happy to, to come back and see how far uh, of, of the dream we have achieved in the next 12 months. 
Absolutely, hopefully substantial progress towards it. Thank you once again so much for joining us. And just because we're not quite out of the woods with the pandemic situation yet, do you continue to take care and stay safe with all that's still going on? I'm sure we're almost there. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Mark Henderson, Chief Executive of Magic Man Limited, onto the programme today. And uh, coming up next on the show, we'll be learning an awful lot more because... Former Education Secretary Lord David Blunkett will be joining us on the programme today. Um, Lord Blunkett is incumbent chairman of the Leaders' Council and will be sharing his experience of the COVID-19 situation and previewing, hopefully, the economic recovery to come. Uh, That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. 
Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there's a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, 
I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually. Uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate 
the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or 
for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm -hmm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now 
about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor uh, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well 
uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways, uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, 
he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.